And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Green light 3-0 and she's gone! Welcome to The 3-0 Show, part of The Athletic Baseball Show. It is Thursday, April 14th. As you listen to this episode, we are speaking mid-morning on the East Coast, no, late morning on the East Coast, even after lunchtime on the East Coast on Wednesday the 13th. It's been a great first week on the field overall, lots of new things as we've seen uh, with some new broadcast partners for the league, new booths working together. Uh, We saw history in San Francisco on Tuesday night. We'll talk about what happened and how we got there, which is also a huge story in and of itself that is still developing at the time of this recording. So we'll get to that, and we'll get to some contract extensions as well. The Guardians opening up the checkbook and keeping Jose Ramirez in Cleveland for what looks like the next six years altogether. So that's pretty exciting stuff if you are a fan of the Guardians. Brian Hayes gets an extension with the Pirates, and uh, an interesting twist, Reds president Phil Castellini threatened to move the team on the day of the Reds' home opener. So, well played, sir. We'll dig into that story (laughs) just a little bit later. But Oldest trick in the owner's book. Great maneuver. Great timing. Just flawless. (laughs) Uh, Let's start in San Francisco. The way the story came out, Alyssa Knack had made baseball history on Tuesday night, becoming the first woman to be an on-field coach in a major league game. And that is a great story. I'm kind of blown away, though, because as... As we dug into what happened, Antoine Richardson, the Giants' first base coach, was ejected from the game. The Giants were winning big, and I had just got back online. I went offline for a couple hours, came back, and I'm like, well, that's weird. A first base coach got tossed in a game that the Giants are winning big. What the heck's going on there? Well, this is cool. Lisa Nackin's on the field. That's great. She's been a part of the organization for three seasons now. Getting this opportunity, that's it's a great step forward, right? It's It's the long overdue progress of a female coach on the field but what is going on with this whole story like this is one of the more unusual things you were at the ballpark on tuesday night and it sounds like it was just as confusing if you were there as if you were trying to parse out what was happening from afar yeah it was really strange i mean it's it's hard also when you're at the ballpark to see into both dugouts and to just have the same view like i I think in some cases maybe this case the viewer at home had a better sense of what was happening because you saw that the players in the Padres dugout were chirping when it had to do with, in the second inning, a stolen base uh, with, I think, Steven Duggar stole a base, um, you know, with the, the, the scores like 10 to 1 or something in the second inning. And um, there, it was already weird because nobody, the, the catcher didn't throw to second. And then there was like this weird pause in the game. And I remember talking to the person next to me about, you know, defensive indifference. And I was like, do they, they could, could they do a defensive indifference there? Like the, the, the catcher didn't even pretend to throw, but we looked it up and it's almost always awarded only in the ninth inning with mm. the, with like the runner that doesn't matter, you know, <laughs> like the lead runner that doesn't matter in like a three run game or something. So, uh, so I knew there was something going on, but I, I couldn't tell that it was the, the, the dugouts chirping at each other. And then when Nagin came out, I was like, what happened to Richardson? Like, what is going on? And uh, apparently what had happened was that uh, there was an, a, a bunt single from Mauricio Dubon in the third, I think, um, where the score was like 12 to 2 or something. And um, they were mad about that. And so there was some chirping directly at Richardson, who at this point is off the field. Richardson has left the field and and he hadn't been yelling at anybody from what we could see. He'd just gone off the field and he was in the dugout. And 
um, you know, Bob Melvin after the bunt did make it sort of a, a gesture towards Gabe Kapler and the other end, like, like sort of like a hands up in the air, like what's, what's going on, dude, you know, like really. Um, and, uh, uh, and so I guess Mike Schilt, who is, um, what do you know what coach what he's the third is? base coach for San third Diego. base coach for the for the Padres uh, former manager of the of the Cardinals he yells over to the other dugout um about you have to control that guy or you know that MF-er. mother effer was the yeah, actual direct MF-er. quote and um referring to Richardson referring to Richardson I guess I think to, to this date like we don't we don't have like clarity about some of these things. Like he guess he could have been talking about Dubon. I don't know if that makes it any better or worse, but like, you know, and Richardson steps to the top step to be like, are you talking about me? Like, are you talking to me? Uh, and he gets thrown out of the game for stepping to the top step like that. That to me is almost the most problematic part because this other stuff is just really about unwritten rules about not stealing, not running up the score um, you know, I have a little rant about that, but you know, that I think we, we sort of have some agreement that the weirdest and the part that's not really being covered by this is the fact that Richardson got thrown out for not doing very much. Right. And Wednesday morning, just before we started recording, Mike Schilt and Anton Richardson met on the field. There was about a 90 second clip from NBC Sports Bay Area, you, no audio, so no idea what was exchanged. One last missing piece is that Richardson s- alluded to sort of racial undertones. He did not, you know, point at anyone and say that was racist or you were racist. It was sort of like, you know, when someone says you got to control that MF or, you know, to a, to a black person, you know, that that, you know, that has a lot of that's a lot of loaded language. Absolutely. That's what Richard, Richardson, like sort of uh, talked to reporters after the game about that. Yeah. So. They met Wednesday. We don't know what was exchanged at, at this time. There were a couple of handshakes and hugs, and they parted ways. So I, I don't know what comes next in this story, but I think the the real unanswered question was, if the last thing Antoine Richardson said on the field before he got ejected by Greg Gibson, the crew chief, at Tuesday's game, if the last thing he said was, excuse me, to what Mike Schilt said to him, mm-hmm. I have no idea how Antoine Richardson gets ejected from this game. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. It was something Richardson addressed in his post-game comments as well, because if he gets ejected in that exchange and Schilt was directing what he said at Antoine Richardson, it's completely backwards. So, mm-hmm. again, further explanation is needed. Umpires are mic'd up. You're ejecting someone from a game. Tell us why. Tell us why. And you tell missed it why. on the field, so... You better tell us now. Reveal more details here. Explain. Give us any any possible missing info there could be. You better better hand it over now because as it played out, Otherwise, as it's been reported so far, this was a really ugly incident on the field in San Francisco. Right, because otherwise we have to fill in the gaps, and mm-hmm. then we have to talk about you know what what the undertones of this were and what the what the meaning was. If you had sort of been more transparent and told us, you know, and then as it comes to as it pertains to the these sort of unwritten rules, there was some uh, other interesting things going on where like Gabe Kapler and uh, Alex Cobb and a lot of the players, like Jock Peterson, was like, "Don't like it, play better." Uh, Alex Cobb was like, hey, we've talked about this. We want to win every series as, as much as we can. We want to get as deep into every bullpen as we can. This this is about not only winning this game you know, by as many runs as we can, but by making it more likely we win the next game by by tiring pitchers out. Like We just want to score, and we want pedal to the metal for every out that we've got. Don't make outs. Make it, you know, score as many runs as you can. And I think that there's n- absolutely nothing wrong with that. And I agree a little bit with what Jock Peterson says when he says, you know, don't like it, play better. But also, uh, there's a couple other things I want to point out. One is, this is a business where players are rewarded on an individual level. So if you are Mauricio Dubon and you're about to go into arbitration, it does matter if you get the hit or not. 
And that is separate from, you know, any discussion of team situation, right? It does matter what you do as a player. You get rewarded for that individually. So you have to keep playing. And then secondly, the other team is still playing. The other team is still shifting. The other team is still trying to strike you out. I mean, yeah, maybe don't steal a base against a position player pitching. I don't know. Even then, why not? It could help you in arbitration. It could be an extra 100000 It could be an extra 50000 in arbitration. So... I don't know, man. I think that while you're out there, if you've, if you've got an out left on the board, you should play as hard as possible. And, and I think that's actually kind of an old school thing to say, isn't it? Yeah. Isn't it, isn't it old school to say, if the game is still on, try? I just, I've never, I've never liked these unwritten rules that have plagued the game, that take the fun out of the game. You're talking about things that were happening in the second and third inning. Teams come back. Teams, if if you can take a ten run lead in the first three innings of a game, guess what? Someone can erase a ten run lead in the next three innings, next one inning of a game. So why why should you be expected to change the way you're going to play? Why? That makes absolutely no sense to me whatsoever. And and how many times have you seen it in other sports where, you know, they do go into like a prevent defense on football, right? Where they're like, you know, like, we're just going to try and keep the the long plays down. And the other team comes back with little dinks and dunks and gets down, runs down the field, right? Or in basketball where they're like, okay, we're just going to slow it down. And and then all of a sudden the other team, you know, gets back into it. I, I, I think you should, if there was a way of winning that got you winning, then you should continue to do that. Because if you stop doing that, you may lose. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, there were some other things that happened over the past week. It wasn't all just what we saw in San Francisco on Tuesday night. And there were some new booths that actually came together. Because as we talked about on this show a few weeks ago, Apple TV actually has Friday Night Baseball. And I was able to catch most of the two games that they picked up. They had two new groups working together. Melanie Newman was on play-by-play for the earlier of the two games. Chris Young and Hannah Kaiser were the two analysts in that group. And the later game, which was an Angels-Astros matchup, had Steven Nelson, Hunter Pence, and Katie Nolan working together. Uh, I I didn't even realize that that was a a combination. I knew Melanie Newman was a part of the play-by-play plan for Apple when that story first came out. And, and looking at the, the two booths and listening to those, like, the first booth was excellent. The first booth, you could not tell that those three people hadn't called games together before, which is remarkable. As someone who speaks into a microphone for most of my job, having chemistry with people you haven't worked with before, it varies quite a bit. I can speak to this. And they did a fantastic job on that early game. There was plenty of drama in that game, too. That was, that was probably the biggest on-field drama of the week where the Nationals constantly hitting Mets batters. I mean, they hit Francisco Lindor in the head with a pitch. Pete Alonso got hit. Buck Showalter was losing his mind, understandably so, because the Nats, without command, just kept drilling guys. And anyway, I thought that booth was was really good. And the second game, I, I felt like you could tell a little bit more that that was the first time out for that group. But I, I, like, I like that we're putting new combinations of people together in these booths, right? If you're going to have games scattered on all these different rights holders, that opens up the door for new people to call games, for new voices to be in the booth. And I found that to be very refreshing. Even in Sunday night's case, when on ESPN, the main broadcast, they obviously had the Michael K. A-Rod, K-Rod cast together on ESPN too, but the main ESPN booth, Carl Ravitch, Eduardo Perez, David Cohn, I thought that was a great combination oh, as well. Oh, that was really great. The, <laughs> the other one was not... I didn't flip over to it because I was just enjoying. Was I was just no enjoying the, the main feed, and I, I used the I used the like voice control to get the game on, and I was like, why, why am I watching the most boring A Rod stuff? Oh, it's so bad! It was so bad. And then somebody was on Twitter going, "Man, this booth is really great," and I was like. They cannot be talking about this A-Rod thing I'm watching. And I realized I was watching like the Alterna cast. And yes, the Cohen booth was really good. <laughs> <laughs> so I enjoyed that, among other things, uh, over the first week. The Apple broadcast, I thought, was also interesting because they did try to bring a couple different um, sort of uh, wrinkles to it uh visually mm-hmm. i thought that the the, the score bug was a little bit different looking and then they also had um and, and i'm not 
I'm not sure 100% about like, you know, how good these percentages were, but they had like, you know, hit percentages and on base percentages that changed with the count um, and gave you a sense of uh, what I liked about it was the count is really important in in baseball you know like the just in terms of uh, your likelihood of getting on base likelihood of getting a hit but also what the hitter is doing i mean you could do fun things like likelihood of a swing in this count because the swing rates change very largely uh from uh when it comes to what what count you're in right uh and and, and you could do things with the pitcher mix with how different some pitchers have very different pitcher mix based on count so there was a, a and it was like in an inobtrusive way i thought right like it was like if you didn't know you were looking for it you wouldn't necessarily see it it wasn't like you know big and blazing thing it was kind of like a fun thing they could talk about if they wanted to uh and they and it didn't it didn't become like a huge character that made everybody on twitter mad about hit probabilities right it was subtly done and yeah. I, I was I was finding myself questioning the math, even though I didn't. Have, <laughs> right, some of the numbers were a little bit high. Yeah. I had my own machine, my own program running to give me some insight into the situation. I was like, "Is that really right?" Like, I, I, not in a negative sort of way. I don't think about those probabilities in those moments. Like, I, I would think about them in the off season if I were reading about various baseball situations. But I'm never thinking about them on a granular level like that. And I just thought that was an interesting presentation wrinkle. And I'm sure we'll see new things along the way. But I thought the the video quality was also really good, too. I saw some people commenting on Twitter that it might have been like a true 4K broadcast or something. So really nice to see that presentation. I thought that was very well done across the board. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. But a lot of things happened in the last week. We're going to try and get to as many of them as we can. How about Jose Ramirez getting a five-year extension with the Guardians? I think you and I and Britt tried on multiple occasions to trade Jose Ramirez to Toronto, among other places. And this is the better outcome. We'd like players to get paid and stay with their original franchise if they want to stay there. And, and he can be that franchise player now, right? We were upset when Francisco Lindor got traded to New York. But keeping Ramirez around, it's... It's a player to build around for them, and they've got a lot of great young talent in that farm system right now. I think the question still comes back to, with the Guardians, how much are they really going to spend on payroll around Jose Ramirez? Because even a team running a 50-ish million dollar payroll on opening day can squeeze in one $20 million player if most of the roster is made up with pre-arbitration players. Yeah, I think that's partially it. You want to have, you want to guess right and and extend the right guy. Uh, that's uh, something that even the A's have tried to do. Uh, they tried to extend Matt Chapman. They did extend Eric Chavez. You know, there's different different guys. They've missed on some. They did extend Chris Davis. That didn't work out so well. But uh, you know, I do think that's part of it. Is just you know find a core piece and extend them, and and then the rest are going to be kind of moving around them. Um, then there's also uh, the the fact that they almost did trade him. Apparently, that's what the scuttlebutt is. Is that that was came down to trade him or extend him? So I don't. I, I hope that there wasn't any sort of using the trade rumors as leverage to to get this thing signed. But there obviously was some sort of connection between you know, we would rather have cost certainty and know you're going to be here or we would trade you, right? That's that's the thinking, I think, in the Guardians front office. And then the last bit that I find pretty interesting is that there was a change in the last collective bargaining agreement that I 
did not really spot. But Dan Zimborski, um <laughs> it almost sounded like I said damn. It did. Dan Zimborski. <laughs> I did not. That damn Zimborski. That zip uh, system really makes me mad. Who, yeah, the father of Zips projections over at Fangraphs had a cool tweet. Uh, He said, it may be use it or lose it for revenue sharing. Previously, the CBA put the burden on teams to prove they spent revenue sharing money on winning if payroll was less than 125% of revenue sharing money. Now it's 150%. So uh, in other words, uh, for example, in 2019, the Marlins received... $70 $70 million in revenue sharing from the collective bargaining agreement, from the collective bargaining, ta- like the, the collective balance tax, right? So they got $70 million that year. If they spent $95 million on their payroll, then they were in the clear, basically. Because, you know, they've done that. Now they would have to spend, uh, wait, what, why am I not doing the math? Oh, now they'd have to spend like $125 million, right? Basically. Uh, for the for the same for the same threshold, so that's significant, and it's interesting because teams get right now about sixty one million dollars in national TV revenue. So those theoretical Marlins could still take the revenue money, take the national TV money, have a hundred and twenty five million dollar payroll, and 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 put five million dollars in their pockets before they a single person attended their games. So it's still not amazing. (laughs) It's still like, you know, but I think these extensions and we're going to have another one we're going to talk about are a little bit of a nod towards like, oh, like, you know, crap, I better I better spend at least 150 percent of the revenue sharing money on payroll. Uh, right. Or else the or else they'll take me to court, which is what has happened in the past. The, the the players' union has had grievances against particular teams like the Pirates and the Marlins for not spending enough of the revenue money on winning. I think it's interesting too because it, anytime you get a player like this, you extend approaching age thirty. Jose Ramirez turns thirty in September. He still had one year left on the previous seven year deal that he signed, so he was under contract through twenty twenty three. This covers all the years on the wrong side of 30. So I'm curious, as you look at a player like this, and you think about a team like Cleveland, which is going to play on the smaller end of the scale payroll-wise, when they invest in a player long-term, they need that player to be someone that does not crater performance-wise over the life of the deal, right? I I think it does a lot more damage to a team like Cleveland to have uh, an Albert Pujols-like contract. What happened with him in Anaheim is much more problematic if you're Cleveland operating under these these tighter self-imposed constraints. When I look at Jose Ramirez, I see a player with skills that should age very well, right? We talk about him all the time on Rates and Barrels from a fantasy perspective. He's been a first-round fantasy pick for years because he's got power and he's got speed, but he's got good strike zone judgment. He does not strike out a lot plays on the infield. I, this is a guy that I think is still going to be Has a defensive good value, yeah. He's going to be a good big league player for most if not all of that deal. This this is one of the safer skill sets that you can invest in long term if you're handing out long-term deals. I think so. I think so. And uh the other kind of deal that I uh, that I think is really like this is uh the other extension that we saw, Cabrian Hayes um you know eight years and was it 70 million eight for 70 yep uh this is uh i think the type of deal that every uh, front office of a smaller market team is trying to do and um and so therefore i do think it's a little actually team friendly because i think if cabrian hayes hits his potential um, you know, which is described by certain stats. Like, for example, he hit a ball harder last year than Chris Bryant or Justin Turner ever did uh, when he hit the ball 111 miles an hour. So he has good raw power. He just hasn't tapped into it. If he taps into that raw power, he will have made. He would have made more than 70 million. But this uh, gives him some certainty. It gives him 70 million dollars that he knows he's going to get. It's guaranteed. It's baseball. It's a guaranteed contract, and it gives the team cost certainty in terms of they know this is how much they have to give him going forward. And uh, it sort of com- it, it comes to uh, it's like the marriage of the, the the risk and the risk aversion for both sides. Right? <laughs> they they they've come to this number. Um, you if you doubt like 
if you doubt that the, every team would want to do this, like, you know, the, the, the Astros were handing them out and they didn't all work out. John Singleton. Yeah, he was one of the few players, I think, that signed a contract like this. And this, this is his deal is even smaller than the Hayes deal. But it was Evan one at the White, time where I think all the writing the about it was very, very team friendly. And it was a rare situation where it, it didn't doesn't work always out work team. out. Yes, there is risk for the team. There is risk for the team. Usually does, though, because I, I think those are the two examples I can think of. That's about it. <laughs> every team in the league has a few players that are in the same sort of service time window as Cabrian Hayes. That they would offer an opportunity like this to buy out years of free agency, tack on some team options, and end up with a player whose average annual salary is under $10 million. Every team's got a few guys like this they'd offer that deal to. Many of those players would turn that deal down. I mean, I, look, the Pirates, they're one of those teams that they need to start gaining some positive momentum. Clearly, frustration with ownership there is off the charts high. And I think they do have some more young talent coming soon. So to have Hayes, who is going to be there for most of the same time anyway, this does take a couple of years of free agency off the table for him. To make that commitment to him now, it's one small step in the direction of, of making this team very competitive again at some point in the not so distant future, right? The, the present is not bright. 2022 is not necessarily bright, but 2023, 2024, those could be much better years for the pirates based on what they've got in that system right now. And, and there's going to be some listeners who scoff at this idea, but combining the last conversation we had about the change in the CBA and current payrolls, and this Hayes thing, and the Pirates, it is possible that the Pirates will sort of have to spend more money soon. Now, the one loophole that I want to bring up about the CBA thing is because of 2020, because of the of the pandemic year, CBA, the CBA, the collective balance and tax, there's been some weird things that have happened. So they had some sort of loan situation where the 2021 revenue sharing was not paid out in full last year because teams were hurting from 2020. So it said that 50% of the 2021 payments would would come back this year. So they're not they're they're in a weird gray zone when it comes to collective balance. I would say next year the players union will sue the pirates if they don't have at least a $100 million payroll for luxury tax purposes based on this 150% rule that's in the CBA. Right now, the Pirates have a luxury tax payroll of $72 million. So, you know, yes, maybe Cabrian Hayes has, you know, has it's a little bit more money next year, but it's there's still about $25, 30000000 million that the Pirates may spend next year. I... I, I I see that face. <laughs> We're on YouTube. I can see that face. I'm not but, making a face, am I? <laughs> yes, you are. You, like many of the Pirates fans, do not believe that this will happen. But I, I am fascinated to see if they don't spend the money, uh, if or how quickly the uh, Players Union will take them to court. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give Pirates fans a, a hug. And uh, you know, like a, not like a, like a that's you know, all I'm gonna say. I'm gonna say I'm on I'm on your side. And if if you're the kind of person that says I think Bob Nutting would rather go to court and spend a lot of money on legal fees than spend the money on payroll. Even if, if it saves him five million dollars, he'll spend all the all the money he needs to to save the five million. That's that's the kind of owner he's revealed himself to be to this point. But. I'd be excited about a Cabrian Hayes extension. And I think if they are going to follow this model, if they want to do something similar with O'Neill Cruz soon after he becomes a regular big leaguer for them, if they want to do something similar with Henry Davis, if they want to take a core and actually try and offer up some, some deals quickly to those players to try and have a, a group of three or four guys that they have even beyond six years of big league control, that would be exciting for the Pirates. That would be a better version of what they have done in the past. So if you're optimistic in Pittsburgh, I'm sure it's a very cautious optimism. And you're not wrong for having cautious optimism. But you can be excited about this. You and I have talked about Cabrian Hayes many times. It comes back to hitting the ball in the air more consistently. He hits mm -hmm. the ball hard. He needs to hit the ball in the air more often. Can they get that out of him? That's the big question. If they can do that, 20-plus home runs are well within reach. 
good average, good OBP, great defense at third base. That is an excellent player to have as part of your core. I think O'Neill Cruz is going to start tapping. I mean, he 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 doesn't have to tap into the power. He's shown the power in games <laughs> and in and the raw. Um, and so, and I think you know people make a big deal out of the fact that O'Neill Cruz is like six foot seven and can he play shortstop? But next to Cabrian Hayes, who will shortly be one of the top two or three defenders at third base in baseball, I think that you can have a tall shortstop at least when he's young. You know. Uh, we've seen that with Carlos Correa, Corey Seager. There's been some taller shortstops recently where people said, oh, they're going to move to third, they're going to move to third. Well, there's fewer balls in play in today's in today's game. Uh, and uh, with shifting, you can put them into the right place. And then maybe with something like uh, a guy next to him, like a Brian Hayes, you can do that. So then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, Hayes, Cruz, Reynolds. Hey, come on now. That's three good players. That's three how many do you need? You've done the research before. How many good players do you need? It was three. It's only three? Three was a core, dude. Why do I remember six as the number? Why didn't I trust you? Three three was a, three is enough of a core. I mean, four was better, but three was a core. Uh, and <laughs> like you think about like how many how many good young players did the Cubs have when they went when they went went for it? What was their core? Well, it was Bryant, Rizzo. Schwarber, Contreras, and they yeah. had great pitching at the time, at least some, like peak but none of those guys were young. Right. Uh, I guess Hendricks, but, you know, Arietta was like a sort of a guy they got off of waivers or something. So, I don't know. Uh, I think three or four uh, was what the what the research said. And so, if they've got three, you know, they're just looking for one more, and uh, there could be signings. There could be a guy who pops up. Uh, the, you know, Diego Castillo looks fun. Rodolfo Castro hits the ball really hard. They've got, you know, a few second basemen that could figure it out. Uh, first base is where you sign an older dude, and uh, corner outfield is where you sign older dudes. So, they're going to be good up the middle and young. So, uh, you know, uh, I just, I kind of hope for that, you know, that extra 20 to 30 million of spending that could, you know, kind of bring them to, you know, good status i don't know about great let's move on to the reds where i think the castellini family might need to spend a little more money on pr or maybe just not have (laughs) phil castellini do interviews on the day of the home opener or maybe never at all but the the interview that took place was on uh, 700 wlw see trent rosecrans has a story about this and phil castellini he's the reds president son of bob castellini was talking to scott sloan and mo egger and they were asking him about you know, payroll and this offseason, and it boiled down to a couple of quotes. Well, where are you going to go? Directed at Reds fans. Like, where else are you going to go to watch a major league game? Okay, that's that's pretty bad start. And then he continues with, sell the team to who? That's the other thing. You want to have this debate? If you want to look at what you would do with this team to have it be more profitable, make more money, compete in the current economic system that this game exists in, it would be to pick it up and move it somewhere else. He said that on the day of the home opener, which in Cincinnati, like opening day in every major league environment is a party to some degree. It always is. Cincinnati does have a different feel to it from everything I've ever seen. They usually get the first game of the season when they open at home too, because of when they start that game and, being in Eastern time zone. They have a huge parade. Schools stop for the day. I mean, it's it's a big deal. So it was maybe the worst day that you could say those words if you are a part of, of the Reds front office and ownership. So if you apologize at the end of the day for what he said, which is whatever, you know, at this point, he said the quiet part out loud. I don't even think that should be the quiet part, though. <laughs> so I wonder, are the Reds among the teams that perhaps could be changing hands? I wonder if the... The rules you were outlining and having to spend more on payroll will actually force some action for some of the the ownership groups that have been reluctant to spend money on payroll. If they'll say, well, this is still profitable, but it's, it's less profitable than I'd like it to be. And we're actually going to see a handful of teams become available as a result of those changes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've heard a little bit uh, already with the learners in Washington, which doesn't strike me as a small uh, market. No, but it is a complicated one because they're still, I think, embroiled in a discussion or a debate or a all-out war with the Orioles when it comes to revenues surrounding their uh, TV market and their TV networks. 
Um, but uh, maybe they just think this is a good time to sell because after a World Series, you get that bump. And uh, they maybe they think that's as far as they can take it. They've also <laughs> uh, sold and developed a ton of real estate around that ballpark. So maybe uh, maybe they're ready just to cash in. But I, I don't I, I do think that they, we'll see we'll see some teams change hands. And I'm not sure it'll be good for the good. Uh, because you will see probably more teams owned by conglomerates, larger groups of investors uh, that have more of an emphasis on making it more profitable uh, season to season. But I think that no matter what, like no matter what you're talking about, like spend more, whatever, make more, whatever, I think part of the Reds' problem has been the involvement of ownership in sort of day-to-day running of the enterprise, which is something that, happens in a lot of the places where you're like why hasn't that team won yet why hasn't that market produced a winner yet a lot of times it is because the owner is too involved in the day-to-day practice of running a team and so i like i think i don't want to say that because the rays can do it everybody else can but i think the rays show you a model of a team that doesn't spend a lot on payroll but the people in the front office have a lot of autonomy and they are allowed to run it the way they see it. And they are allowed to, you know, be efficient. And they also stick with one plan and do it for more than one year. The Reds seem like they have a new plan every three years. They're going to do this. They're going to spend on free agency. No, they're going to spend on uh, uh, on coaching. They're going to spend on a pitching coordinator. They're going to do this. They change it every three years. And so every, you know, every couple of years in Cincinnati, it's like, well, we've got a new plan. All right. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I was actually wondering if the the Winker Suarez trade, if that was time before people completed reading the new CBA, and then they realized, oh no, we actually have to get money back on the books. And they made the trade <laughs> to get Mike Miner uh, for Amir Garrett. You know that trade with the Royals. They signed Tommy Pham. They're they're not running a Cleveland payroll. Their payroll is over a hundred million. That's okay. Like that's fine. I just yeah. They should be able to. They should be able to find a winner. Is what I'm saying. Like you could like uh, there are hundred million dollar payroll winners. Yes. I saw them as a legitimate threat to win the NL Central before the lockout ended, and they made the combination of moves that they made, and they're still not a bad team. Got a lot of young pitching coming up. Lodolo and Green are very exciting. Yeah, lots of uh, reasons to be excited if you like young pitching in Cincinnati right now, but. Not the, not the best opening day performance by a front office member that we have seen. The whole combination of like the the trading winker and you know right into right into this has just been kind of stepping. Up, you know, like there was that thing in in uh, in The Simpsons where the dude just steps on the rake one after the other. Oh, I'm trying to remember sideshow Bob. Yes, yes, sideshow Bob steps on like five rakes in a row or whatever. Ooh, I wonder if, if Sideshow Bob is going to catch on on Twitter now for Bob Castellini. <laughs> we shall see. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra-flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB show. 
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Some other week one observations. I think we should give out hardware on a weekly basis. I was thinking about awards and I thought, what's the best award we could give someone who's never heard of our podcast, who doesn't care about little awards from a podcast they've never heard of? I thought if we had a, a hitter of the week and a pitcher of the week on this show, we could make the prize a pack of baseball cards from the year that the player debuted or the year that the player was born, whichever is cheaper for us to provide to that player <laughs> as an award. And it would also come with a handwritten thank you note or a congratulatory note from you and me and Brit, and we could offer that up every week this season. It requires an extraordinary amount of effort, so perhaps we'll we'll gather up all the information and see if we can actually make awards. We can we can hand out fake awards. Pitcher of the week for the first week of the season. I'm throwing Tyler McGill out there. You know, Vila was up two very good starts, filling the shoes of Jacob Degrom and looking more Degromish than we would have expected. Not no one's Jacob Degrom, but Tyler McGill throwing a lot harder. That in and of itself is pretty interesting for the Mets, who might need him a lot more than they expected just a few weeks ago. Yeah, it's unfortunate that Jake DeGrom has gone down with injury, and now Taiwan Walker, um, and they also uh, have some, you know, there's Carlos Carrasco on that staff, so they're going to need Tyler McGill. And, and, and you know, the nice uh, thing that, that really stood out is, um, you know, last year he had two good secondaries uh, in the slider and the changeup, and that's rare enough uh, to have, you know, a changeup and, and a breaking ball that are plus. Um, you know, I, in my experience, it's been mostly players are one or the other, you know, multiple breaking balls or or a changeup and uh, and like a cutter or something, you know, something to get them go where they need to go. But, um, you know, he had two good secondaries and the fastball wasn't great. But if you pump up even a fastball with not the greatest shape, if you pump it up to 96, 97, uh, you're going to you're going to. And he, he's one of the biggest risers uh, in my metric called Stuff Plus, which looks at the shape and velocity of pitches. Um, so he's now uh, threatening to be kind of like a, a top 40 type pitcher uh, after just two starts of, of really excellent work. So uh, I think everything under the hood says that he was as good as the results on the field. Yeah, that four-seamer up almost two ticks from where it was last year. So pretty significant velo increase for Tyler McGill. Any other candidates for you for pitcher of the week in week one? I mean, getting two starts in a week kind of puts you at the front of the line, barring That's some right. kind of complete game shutout or something amazing that a pitcher can do. Well, Matt Brash was really exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, his debut, he didn't win it. Um, so, you know, somebody can say he lost. But uh, <laughs> he showed the best stuff plus uh, of anybody uh, in of any starter in baseball so far. And uh, that's because he's got really good ride on a really hard fastball. Then he's got a kind of a sweepy uh, sideways breaking ball. And then he also has a more vertical up down breaking ball. I don't know what you want to call either of them. I would say maybe slider and curve, but you know they also go really fast. I mean, he's talking about uh, a mid '80s breaking ball, like sort of high '80s and a, and a low '80s breaking ball. So this guy has the two breaking ball approach. It looks really excellent. Uh, 
They went uh, on the on the radio broadcast for the Mariners. They said that internally, uh, you know, the Mariners stuff plus uh, for his slider said it was ninety percent better than the average slider. <laughs> they had ninety percent one nineties on his slider, um, and uh, uh, you know, so uh, another coach I talked to that worked with him said that uh, it was the best slider he had ever seen. Uh, so. I think that's a pretty. Those are some good superlatives to to throw on a guy that had held the White Sox lineup. Even if he lost, he held that White Sox lineup uh, down, and that is uh, an impressive feat for a debut. And he he also just looked uh, really unfazed doing it. Like he was just he just gripping it and ripping it. Like he was ready to go. So I, that's that's my candidate. Uh, I, I can see giving it to Miguel though. All right. Well, I think we're going to give it to McGill, but I was excited about Matt Brash. Not at all surprised that your pitching model liked him because it was kind of like when I watched Shane McClanahan's debut last year where it was kind of like, whoa, hey, wait a minute. Why why was this guy not the number one pitching prospect in baseball based on, on the eye test? And obviously getting to see everybody at various stages makes it a little easier to draw those conclusions. But uh, people may have been sleeping a bit on Matt Brash in part because of his delivery. It's something that Keith Law talked about, I believe, on last Friday's episode of the Athletic Baseball Show. So we'll see physically how he holds up with that delivery as this season. There were some that thought that he would be a reliever. Um, He also, you know, just the way that he was drafted and what happened, um, I actually see there's some, I think there's some uh, parallels to the Fernando Fernando Tatis uh, trade where when the Padres got Fernando Tatis, he'd just been in in like short season ball. And so nobody had really seen him. He was so young that there hadn't been that many people who'd seen him. He hadn't played that much. And so they they the people that did see him had really conviction in in what they'd seen and they targeted him. They wanted to get him. Um, and in, with the brash thing, what happened was he got he got drafted out of college, pitched a little, but he'd pitched a lot that year. Uh, and so they shut him down. And then in 2020, he wasn't at the alternate site. So here's another pitcher that when at the time that the Padres traded him to the Mariners for Taylor Williams uh, had not really pitched a lot. A lot of people hadn't seen him. But the beauty of these stuff metrics is that they are useful really quickly. You only need 300 pitches, even 200 pitches, there's signal in it. So if you get 300 pitches of data on this guy, you can start to say something real about this player, even if he hasn't pitched for a whole season. And I think the Mariners probably said, listen, this is the best slider that in the Padres organization. <laughs> and they put him on the list of players to be named later. Let us take that and figure out if he's going to be a reliever or a starter. And uh, they've done a great job developing. I mean, I think it's a kudos to them that they've gotten him to uh, the potential of 140 innings this year. Uh, and uh, I don't think that necessarily that delivery screams injury to me. On TV from behind didn't look as bad as it might from behind home plate because when I was watching them like mechanics are not my expertise but I didn't see anything that scared me but you see sometimes you see guys pitch like oh that's that's unusual it didn't look that weird to me from the TV angles at least there's some side angles where there's there's some argument about how flexed your knee needs to be when you land Hmm. Um, and the, you know, I've heard it just last, just yesterday in the clubhouse. I was talking to a pitcher about it, and you know, yes, I do think that it's probably better to have some flexion in the knee. And he looked a little bit sort of like against a locked knee, um, so there is a little bit of whip at the end. Um, but uh, I would say that uh, we're not at the point where there are yeses and nos and this is the way you should pitch in baseball (laughs) like we're we're working on biomechanical research and there's a lot of good stuff coming out of it but you know there's no like writ large this is how thou shalt pitch and everyone who does not pitch this way shall get hurt i have a a weird thought and opinion about this i kind of feel like you should just do what doesn't hurt if it doesn't hurt (laughs) your shoulder and your elbow it's working for you (laughs) <laughs> I, I realize it, that that in and of itself isn't enough. You need to have mechanics that are consistent and, and, and clean. But at a certain point, if you get people to do things that feel unnatural, I think you're more likely to put extra stress on the shoulder and the elbow. So, yeah, mm-hmm. the perfect mechanics thing, that's been elusive as long as I've been following baseball. And it doesn't seem like we're, we're really like locked in on anything at this point. 
No, I think that's a really smart thing to say because, you know, when you get a, a pitcher, especially in the major leagues or even, you know, even a guy who you just brought into your organization, they've been pitching. They've thrown thousands of pitches before they met you, you know? And so, you know, there's this temptation, even with a 17-year-old who they've thrown thousands of pitches, even at 17, you know? And and there's this temptation to be like, oh, oh, dude, you can't, oh, not like, you can't throw like that. And then you say, okay, we got to throw like this. And then you change them into a position that their body is not comfortable with. And it just doesn't work, you know? And this can have uh, this can have effects when you're talking about, oh, we're really trying to get more ride out of this guy's fastball. So can you do this with your arm uh, in order to get more ride out of it? And then they're just like, I'm not, A, I'm not throwing with conviction. This doesn't feel good. And B, like, you know, I, I can't command it anymore because it's this new movement that I'm not, you know, that I haven't thrown for thousands of pitches. So you, there is, there is a lot of art. It's not just science when it comes to pitching coaching where you're like, hey, this is the, this is the best way to do things your pitcher should look like this and blah 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 you have to listen uh you know to the the player and the player can tell you i can't i can't throw that it doesn't feel good when i throw that i can't command it when i throw that and so you have to alter how you're you're coaching them to kind of take that input from the from the pitcher and 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 do what feels good let's get to a hitter of the week selection i think this one sort of wrote itself on the rundown it seems like the Stephen Kwan experience has been <laughs> maybe the biggest performance related he highlight just, of while we were recording this got his first swinging strike and his first strikeout oh whoa, uh, whoa, whoa, Nick whoa. Lodolo Nick Lodolo, Nick Lodolo put Stephen Kwan in his book <laughs> uh, it was Nick Lodolo's first strikeout oh, so that was a fun right. thing that C, C. Trance Rose kind of pointed out the uh, they both got their first strikeout at the same time. Uh, except that it was a little bit more uh, meaningful when it comes to Quan because he went like 110 pitches without missing a single. He saw 110 pitches and didn't miss a single one. So, I mean, elite bat to ball with uh, really good plate discipline, which doesn't always happen. A lot of these guys who have elite plate bat to ball swing a lot. Yeah, they can hit I everything. Mean, like they, they, they have, have the everything. gift of hitting everything, so they swing a ton. Like Luis Arias, like Je- yeah, Luis Arias, Jeff McNeil, uh, uh, Nico Horner, Nick Madrigal. None of those guys has like a ten percent walk rate. Yeah. You know, they all kind of just like slap. Here we go. I can hit that. I'm gonna hit it. Uh, where Quan kind of puts together a combination of a really good eye at the plate, and he says that the team has actually been telling him to kind of identify some counts and situations where he can let it rip further. And so maybe access some of that power uh, to add to it. Because that's the only sort of complaint uh, that anybody can have about Stephen Kwan is how many homers he's going to hit. Is he going to hit seven? Is he going to hit 12? Uh, maybe it doesn't matter if he has a 400 on base percentage and uh, hits 350. So uh, looks, it, it is fun, really. In a, in, a, in a league where we have so many guys who can hit tons of homers and strike out 25% of the time, it is fun fun to watch Stephen Kwan. You just know he's going to put the ball in play, and that is fun to watch. So, you know, more power to that group I just named. May all of them have jobs all season, and may all of them continue to put the ball in play. Nice combination of guys that don't strike out a lot at the top of the order in Cleveland, right? You have Miles Straw, who also got an extension, Kwan, and then Jose Ramirez, all under 20% K rates. And then if you bring in someone like Fran Mil Reyes as your, your cleanup hitter, well, there's a pretty good chance someone's on base for Fran Mil Reyes, so all all good things. And he's your more traditional, more, more traditional type hitter where he'll he'll strike out a bit, but when you put him behind all these guys getting on base, that's a really good combo. So, yeah, maybe there's something brewing there. I mean, they've always had really excellent uh, pitching uh, development, and uh, you know, by Zips, which we mentioned earlier, Zips projections, they have the most uh, top 100 prospects as projected by Zips. Mm. So. Uh, they are a data and tech team uh, that also, I think, has had the conviction to kind of zig a little bit when other people were zagging. I mean, they got Miles Straw from the Astros, who are, uh, you know, at the forefront of uh, when it comes to player development and uh, R and D and 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 sort of being a progressive, future-looking baseball team. They got Miles Straw from them for not too much, and uh, you know, he fit right into the top of their lineup, and they're happy with that trade. So. That this is a team that's sort of zigging and being like, "Hey, we will, we will lose some power at the expense of making contact." 
others receiving votes for our week one awards. How about Seiya Suzuki? Four games into his big league career, three home runs, showing a very patient eye already. I think if you were among the teams that were close back when he signed that five-year, $85 million deal with the Cubs, this first week has made you even more sad that you missed out based on what we're seeing so far. Yeah, yeah tough week for the Padres with uh, losing Matt Brash and Seiya Suzuki, which... Uh, would have helped uh, helped him a lot. There is a stat called reach rate or chase rate, which is how often a player uh, swings at a non-strike at a ball. Seiya Suzuki, number one in baseball, just really disciplined. Uh, just to give you a sense of some of the other players on this list, uh, Christian Yelich is second. Juan Soto, of course, is third. Uh, but other so good, other good players like Mitch Garver, Jesse Winker, uh, Josh Lau, and Gavin Lux to get some young guys on there. Um, Matt Olson, Mookie Betts. It's a good it's a good place to live. Yeah, the other uh, hitters that tore it up in Week One include Byron Buxton, who's laying the groundwork for a little Ooh. MVP run. Wander Franco has been red hot, and Jose Ramirez, even with the the extension, also. Starting the Buxton season, gets the honorable mention, though I think uh, one real standout moment for him uh, was taking a hundred and two from Andres Munoz. Uh, that was about three, four inches above the top of the zone, and taking him tank, taking him yard. That was uh, that was a doozy. I mean, that was that's that's almost more of a like a visual. Uh, if you were just going to give the award based on one visual, it would be that one, I think. But Quan has that sort of the hype and the the body of work, I think. I saw Cedric Mullins go lefty-lefty at the top of the zone on a Josh Hader fastball and miss a home run by inches. It was a double, and it was only the seventh double that Josh Hader has allowed to a lefty in his entire career. That was one of those stats when they said it during the game. Wait a minute, could that possibly be right? And yeah, (laughs) that's just the kind of dominance that Hader has had against lefties. I mean, Mullins missed a game-tying home run by millimeters a very impressive display of hitting yet a grand slam earlier in that game and then hunter green i think also on the pitching side just from a fun debuts standpoint i really wanted to to bring this up because this is the concern if you're watching on on youtube in the rates and barrels youtube channel hunter green averaged over 99 miles per hour on his four seamer in his debut you don't see a lot of guys doing that as starters the problem as you can see on the screen, and I'll describe it for you if you're not watching on screen, is the location, right? We mm-hmm. talk about the heat maps. You can get these from Baseball Savant. You have what looks like, it's, this isn't even a fried egg necessarily. This is just a red dot right in the middle of the strike zone. And you can get away with that for a little while, but big league hitters eventually start to square that up. And I think that's going to be the, the key to Hunter Green's rookie season is whether or not he locates his fastball consistently more up in the zone. If you can get that ball up in the zone, top third of the zone more consistently, it's going to be a really good pitch for him. But if he's missing with his fastball over the heart of the plate, it is going to get punished by big league hitters. It is, it's part of an ongoing debate about stuff versus command, but I would point out that he had the second best stuff number among starters uh, to Matt Brash um, and that you can actually look at you know, the results on like 99, like he throws down the middle and they are uh, better than, you know, dotting 90 in some places. So, sure, sure. Uh, you know, I think the bet with him is I'm just, I'm here to outstuff you. That's, that's what I'm here to do. I'm just here to throw it by you. I don't care. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to aim towards the middle of the zone because I don't want to walk you. So I, I think I can beat you wherever. So I, I, it's fascinating. I love watching him pitch, and the slider has taken a real step forward, I think, too, in the development process. So he's he's a legitimate pitcher. Yeah, the slider location was excellent. Threw it mostly to righties, and it was consistently down and away, but still in the zone a lot too. So you know, a called strike, but also a pitch you really can't do much with if he's locating it that well. So I would say slider command very good, fastball command while he can get away with it. I still think I'd like to see that that red dot just a little higher, just a little bit higher, because mm. catching up to that ninety nine plus up at the letters, or maybe two dots, happen. like one a little bit lower and one a little higher, rather than just yeah. one dot right in the middle. <laughs> exactly, but uh, a great first week so far, and a lot of great young players in the game right now getting those opportunities. We didn't even talk about. 
guys like Julio Rodriguez and Spencer Torkelson. It's been a bit of a slow start for a lot of them. Bobby Witt uh, Jr. had a nice showing on opening day. You know, we're going to get to those guys as things happen. It's a it's a hard game as everyone is learning. Congratulations to those guys on their first hits, though. Yeah. Well, it's been been a great week of baseball overall. That is going to do it for this episode of the 3-0 Show. Give us a follow on Twitter. You can find Eno at Eno Saris. You can find Britt at Britt underscore Diroli. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. Drop us an email, rates and barrels at theathletic.com. Just make it known that it's for the 3-0 Show. We can take those questions on a future week. And if you've got ideas for these uh, little prizes that we might give players for winning our silly little awards, Hit us up. I think the the baseball card thing might actually take off at some point, especially if we keep getting players that were born in the 90s. Those are easily available packs of baseball cards. They made a lot of those cards. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Dave, a lot of players we choose for player of the week were born in 91, 92, and 93. You'll know the reason. It was because the budget for the awards is low. (laughs) (laughs) It's because we had 50 cents per week to spend on on our awards. (laughs) Get a subscription to The Athletic for just $1 a month at theathletic.com slash baseball show. The Athletic Baseball Show returns on Friday. At the 3-0 show, you've always got the green light. 